0: At Christmas time, you see the bell ringers for the Salvation Army collecting money for the poor. But do you know when you give money to them, you're giving money to a cult? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. John Wesley believed in sinless perfectionism, the idea... Not that he thought it applied to him personally, but the idea that somebody in their Christian walk could reach the point that they were without sin. And this idea stayed around for a while with Wesley, but then it kind of died out. And then it it revitalized during the Second Great Awakening in the mid-19th century. And with the Second Great Awakening, there became this idea that that people could become sinless. And one of the big driving forces that caused this to spread Throughout the whole world was the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army believed that when you were witnessed to, you then became part of the the Salvation Army, those who were saved. And then the Salvation Army would help you maintain the good works so that you would stay right with God, essentially. So it's very much teaching and practicing false doctrines. But yet they do help the poor. So is it wrong to give to them because they have false beliefs?
1: yes i think our point is in this episode is that yes it does matter it does matter if an organization like this has false doctrine and it might actually be worse to give to an organization that has false doctrine than one that just simply is secular entirely and we we use you know the word cult um and but we're not looking to you know nitpick or be too particular because that word is a bit vague it's a bit ambiguous it's more of a derogatory term for a small religious group you know you know people call you know if if you took a look at the literal thing where it's related to culture a group that a small group that has its own culture well then christianity you know orthodox christianity that applies to it um you know and so it's certain you look at the list of what a cult is and certain elements of that apply to the salvation army and certain don't but the point is that they're uh they have core doctrines that are heretical and that that's what we're going to be talking about we're going to be going through specific doctrines that they hold and they say and read the quotes from them that are heretical.
0: And I think fundamentally, when you go back to it, the issue with John Wesley and the issue with the holiness movement is it shifted it from being about God to making it about man, right? It says in Matthew 5, when Jesus Christ is on the Sermon on the Mount, he says that they are to see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. So the person who desires to give and to help the poor, if they help the poor through somebody who's teaching a false view of God and teaching that it's about the exaltation of man and about man's good works that earn him a place with God, that that you can be without sin, that you can actually purely love. If you're teaching all these things, then then that good work that you think you're doing of, of helping the poor, in the end, it's not about people seeing your good works and glorifying your Father in heaven. It's about the glory of man. And so, to do that, God doesn't say that's a good thing because it is supposed to be for His glory.
2: I mean, it, it, when you think about this scenario, the, it's a really relevant passage to go back to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory for men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. So we have a really clear passage that just is supposed to give you the framework for how you do charity. And, And in many different ways, Jesus is coming at it and saying, don't do it to be seen by men. And so when you've got somebody who has an organization that is a charitable organization that kind of really seems like it's done to be seen by men, you've got to put it up against this passage as a mirror and see how it, it lines up.
0: And Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, I mean, basically his, his view was is that you, you feed them because by feeding them, then they'll listen to the gospel. And because he believes that it's by the strength of man that people are saved, well, the first thing that you have to do is get their attention. So his charitable works – and I think the Salvation Army has somewhat moved from this, but his charitable work, the whole point of it was for the char- charitable work to be seen by men because he thought he could then talk them into heaven. And so if they didn't see the charitable work, then it wasn't it wasn't worth doing.
3: I mean we should recognize how much this has affected our view of what charity is, how much – I mean – when we think about what a charity is, when we think about what a, a charitable work here is, I mean, we've been really affected by organizations like the Salvation Army that have very specific theological beliefs. And they've sort of shaped the American idea of how you do good works and even how you do Christian good works, even where there may be people who don't think of them as a Christian organization, even though they have Salvation Army in their name. But in the end, we do think of this as a very, even the, unsaved would think of it as a moral thing how do you do moral things how do you do them in the world what's their purpose and there's a part of it where we've kind of drawn this separate we you know we've we've really separated things from theology in our mind and theology matters theology drives the world and so i think it's important to examine that and to actually ask it because scripture actually says very clearly this verse here says there's a way to do charitable deeds And so scripture should obviously be the thing that we look to to ask, how should we think about that as Christians?
1: And I think we should acknowledge that not everything about them and not all their theology is negative. Like I was reading an article attacking the Salvation Army from some sort of like communist group or something, whether they called themselves that or not. And they were saying, you know, it was horrible. They were they were not attacking the rich. They were they were saying that the poor have to work to provide for themselves if they're able to. And, like, those are actually good things and those are biblical things. So it's not all of their theology is bad. But the, the parts that are bad are, are serious. Right. Um, and, and also, you know, if, in isolation, you know, feeding the poor. If, if you take that in isolation, like, sure, that can be a good thing. But if you look at, you know, what's the gospel they're pushing, then, then we run into issues. And if
2: you look at them as a, as a political element or something, they've made all the right enemies, you know. They're, they're socially on the right sides of things. So there's reasons you would want to be sympathetic with them. Or want to be sympathetic with them, at least when they're coming under certain kinds of attack.
1: Right. Or at least until recently, because they were, they did get attacked a lot because they were, you know, they had a pretty conservative view of uh, marriage and, um, you know, premarital relations. and But, but recently they've changed a lot. They've, they're have they like pro-LGBT. They have like a, a homeless shelter just for transgender people. So like they, they were like a in, I forget how many years ago, but they they were like getting attacked all the time, and at a certain point, they just completely crumbled and went over like full like liberal and like advertising that. Heavily.
0: Well, they're classic conservatives, right? Conservatives say you keep what is the status quo, and so they are conservative. They're not Christian; they're conservative. And so once the status quo became just like how many Republicans would say we're for homosexual behavior, we're for homosexual marriage. Most Republicans would. So they're classic conservatives that. the The mores of the society change, they match it, as opposed to saying what has God said, which they're willing to reject. And they've always been willing to reject it. Right from the beginning, they were willing to reject what God said because they don't see what God says as authoritative. And you do have an issue that that,
1: that charitable deeds that aren't done for the glory of God are, are worthless, eternally speaking. Um, and even if you're putting God's name in your spiel, it doesn't mean that it's truly for the glory of God. And if it's a God that is a God that is a, from a false gospel, then it's not the true God, and and it's not bringing glory to God. In fact, it's stealing glory from Him. Um, and, and it and I would I would say that it's even worse than to say you know we're just people who like helping others. I mean that it's worse to say we're for a God that makes you perfect in this life.
0: And I would you know you look at. The compromises that they made, and I mean, I understand that they did say that the poor should work, and they said some things that were good, but also they, they were willing to make compromises to make money because they said that these charitable deeds that we're doing are so important that we have to make compromises so that the wealthy – so they're, they are an organization that it grew because they were, they were saying things that the wealthy did like to hear.
1: I think there was a quote from him. I don't remember that the booth, William Booth, the founder of it. There was a quote from him that was something along the lines of, you know, an, uh, a charitable organization can never upset its donor class. Like, well, OK, yeah, if you're especially because you're a, in some form a church to say we're just not going to address the sin and ups- to upset a certain group of people. I mean, that is a pr- pretty horrible statement.
0: I mean most places that you look that have you know denominations that are found on the holiness movement I mean it's listed as a denomination it is a christian denomination just like the you know the nazarenes and these other groups that are all going back to the same thing and the same they all sprung out of the same false doctrines and so to say we should Say they're a denomination. That's what they consider themselves.
1: Yeah, and we might know of like, you know, the Salvation Army like shelters, or the Salvation Army thrift stores, but like they actually have, I forget the term for it. Citadels. But, but yeah, but they have they have church buildings. Like they have buildings that are just for their church meetings because, and I don't know that all the people who work with them, probably most of the people who work with them don't. I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, that is a real thing that is how they were, you know, propagating themselves as we are a church i think at some points you know they're you might have been kind of wishy-washy on are we they actually a church but when you have like church building, Sunday morning standard worship service you're setting yourself up as a church undeniably
3: i mean and one of the things that we kind of said at the beginning here and this will probably there's a, th- a theme that'll be running throughout the episode in some ways because what you said was when in the salvation army's view in the holiness view once you hear the gospel and you believe. You accept Christ. You become part of this army. And then the work that they do is how they stay saved because they absolutely believe that you you can lose your salvation and that, in fact, it is this work that keeps you in the faith. And so there's this part of it where this ministry that they've created, these things that they do, this is their means to stay saved. And so when you talk about them not you can't anger your donor base, that's a theological statement for them because they have to. They have to do this work to stay saved. And if you don't have this money coming in, you can't do that work, which means you can't stay saved. And so these things, they're not separate at all. And so you can see, whereas you can see how a small shift suddenly changes the focus of everything. Instead of, I mean, we we talk here a lot that God saves you and he saves you to do work. If you read their theological statements, they talk about the priesthood of all believers and they talk about these things and they talk about that everyone has work to do. And so there's this, Part of it where you could say these are very similar to Orthodox Christianity. But as soon as you make that shift, all of a sudden you have to develop this this thing that they've created, the reason they need people to be out there, even the person ringing the bell, and they need you to give money so they can stay saved. And so, I mean, it is this part of it where, I mean, theology really drives this. Theology drives the whole thing, and everything shifts around that, and it changes so when you're giving money to it, you're not giving money to some organization that's out there trying to help people. You're giving money to an organization of people who are trying to continue to be saved. And like you said, now where they've shifted in their their views, and this is very, a lot of things they're willing to give up on, but they're not willing to give up on that. That's that's core. We can't give up the money. We can't give up the work. We can't give up this, what we're doing, because that's the heart of our salvation. And so that's, I think that's a really important thing to remember as you go through here. None of these things are, they're not neutral. They're not, they're not something that you can just go, well, I'm just going to treat them as if they're a charity.
0: And the problem is when you treat them as if they're a charity, what you're saying is it is all about man. Right. And God says it's not. He says it's all about God and they're making it all about man. And that's, that's why. When you say, well, it's just a charity, you're actually taking their position and making it a man-centered religion and taking your Christianity and saying it's all about what man wants rather than what God wants.
3: Right. You can't do that with anything, but you certainly can't do it. I mean and my point but, is, is right. you can't do it here, but you can't do it in other areas. We have a lot of episodes well, about how corrupt the whole the charitable organization movement is, and there's a reason for that.
0: But it's especially worse when you say you're a church and right. you say you're a Christian denomination. And you say that we're part of the universal Christian church, which is one of the things that they seem to speak about a lot right. is that that's kind of the term that they use for themselves because they kind of want to hide the fact that they're a denomination. But yet that's really what they are.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like a, a, a cult signal. Like, guys, we're just like you. We're Christians. Guys, guys, please, please, we're Christians. It's, our, it's on our tagline on our website. How can we not be Christian just like you? Look, we put it front and center.
0: Right, We put it in the first paragraph. Yeah. But the other thing that they do is they make themselves out to be an army. And, yes, there is some truth to that. There is some symbolism of that. There's the full armor of God. There's There's Paul writing to Timothy saying that you're a good soldier of Christ. There are times where that symbolism is used, but they've shifted it to say that this is about the army going forth. But that's not what the church is for, and so they've twisted the purpose of the church. Because even their church services, they're, they're you know, they, they're seeker sensitive before the seeker sensitive movement in a real way. Because it's like let's have upbeat music, let's have things, let's make sure everybody's entertained at the church service. Because it's not about God, it's making sure people come because salvation is through the work of going to church. And so you don't want to make it hard. And so it's not that much about doctrine, it's much more about rah-rah, you know, have a good time, those kind of things. As opposed to what the Bible says the church is supposed to be about, in the meeting of the church, it's not so that you go, we're the army, it's so that you grow in knowledge and you grow in understanding. Ephesians four eleven through 13 says, and he gave some to be apostles some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The purpose by which God gave the church structure is actually to mature the church. It's actually to grow the knowledge of the church. It's to grow the understanding. It's not to say, let's go conquer the world. And that doesn't mean that that's not what the church is supposed to do, but the way the church is supposed to do it is not by having captains and corporals and lieutenants and generals. And, you know, that's it's not a hierarchy. It's supposed to be you train them up to understand who Christ is, and then they go and do
3: the work. Right. The issue isn't that they use the metaphor of an army because, like you said, Scripture uses it. It's that they applied it to Everywhere they applied it to, it's not where Scripture applies it to. Scripture does not say, like you said, create a hierarchy. Scripture does not. Scripture says there are weapons. It compares physical weapons to spiritual weapons. It compares physical conflict to spiritual conflict. But it, but that's pretty much what in the nature of the seriousness of it, and in these things. But it doesn't go into all these other areas where they. And that's all they really take it to. They don't take it to the things where scripture does take it that's not where their emphasis is and so and
0: specifically when scripture takes it it's all foot soldiers right there's one commander and the rest of us are fo- foot soldiers timothy was a foot soldier even as he was telling the church in ephesus what to do he was a foot soldier and so they're taking it and saying there should be all these ranks and there should all be you know let's create a whole ranking structure well none of that is biblical
3: and it's not they have no spiritual discernment because god doesn't need god doesn't need a hierarchy Moses needed a hierarchy because he was just a man. God says, I can communicate through the spirit. I can, you know, and so you even understand that they don't even they're of course needing this for the same reason the Roman Catholic Church needs it because they can't rely on the Holy Spirit to do these things. They can't they can't trust the Holy Spirit to guide the work. It has to be guided by man.
0: And you can't stick with your false doctrines unless they're guided by men. Because if people start to go to the Bible to look for the doctrines, if you start to teach what's in the scripture, like it says in Ephesians 4, well, their doctrines fall apart pretty quickly. It's not like those doctrines are that hard to find refutations of in the scripture. No, they're, they're, they're really easy to find where there's a problem with what they're saying. It's just a completely wrong view of man is where they start with and that's where they end with. I mean, that's that's the whole problem, and if you go to Scripture, so you have to build a hierarchy just like you said with the Roman Catholic Church so that people can hand down decrees and then go, but you can't understand it, so you just have to trust us. Well, that's exactly what the Salvation Army does.
2: And, and any time you have a wrong view of man, you always have a wrong view of God because yes. because in order to have a wrong view of man, you're putting man somewhere somehow in a place that God's supposed to occupy. That God does occupy, but you're just denying that he does. And so, you know, like Charles is saying, you're putting man in the place that the spirit occupies. You're putting man in the place that Jesus occupies. And and so you have a false doctrine of man, but that also means you have the more serious problem.
0: You've got a bad doctrine of God. And the bad doctrine of God flows out through everything that they do. And they end up making man, and they put a man in the place of God, basically, because it's not the word of God that determines what sin is. It's not the word of God that determines what righteousness is. What it is is Booth did. When Booth was in charge of it, he got to define what sin was. Well, that's a big problem because God says, I'm the lawgiver. And as soon as you say Booth is the lawgiver, you have put him in the place of God because the one who gives law is God.
2: What do you mean he got to define what sin was?
0: Meaning that he would define, I mean, that's for the in the Salvation Army, he would define what was acceptable behavior and what was not.
2: That sounds kind of like a cult. <laughs>
0: well, we did say it was kind of like a cult at the beginning.
3: He was a mini pope.
2: But that's why they have doctrines about, say, not smoking, for example. It's right, because-, because
0: he didn't like to smoke or he didn't want to smoke. He found smoking to be a disgusting habit. So he, you know, even they have rules about not drinking. And that that flows through. I mean, that was coming from the holiness movement, the whole thing about not drinking. But, I mean, the Salvation Army even admits that it's not biblical, that that's not what the Bible teaches. But they still hold you can't drink because Booth said you can't drink.
3: And and he said it because of holiness. I mean, he claimed it was he because of holiness. He said it because
0: – because Of holiness. And and that holiness movement goes back and reads John Wesley's writings. And John Wesley said that that you can't drink alcohol. So, I mean, it's just them all repeating one another and they're all just just, they're just worshiping men. And that's why they have these positions. And they even admit they're not biblical, but they're saying that we're the lawgiver, not God. And God can't be the lawgiver.
3: Jesus Christ says, "John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and you said he is a demon. And I come eating and drinking, and you say I'm a wine bibber and a glutton, right? I mean, and then they say we're going to be holier than Jesus,
1: right? I mean, so we want to go through uh, a few of their their doctrines and what even what they're saying about their doctrines. And uh, the first one we have there, I think they have twelve like main doctrines." and uh this is number 9. We believe that continuance in a state of salvation depends upon continued obedient faith in Christ.
0: Part of the problem though is that it's not obedient faith in Christ. Part of the problem is that that it's really obedient faith in Booth in what the Salvation Army has determined what is sin because they don't hold that that the Bible tells you what sin is. They hold that That basically anything that's unloving is sin, and then they define what love is, which means that they're the lawgiver. And so when it talks about continued obedient faith in Christ, they can go, well, you get thrown out because you smoke. Well, is that obedience faith in Christ or is that obedient faith in Booth?
2: And I mean, anytime you set up workspace righteousness, you you don't end up defining works according to how God defines them. You'll end up coming up with some other standard, right?
0: Because that always leads to damnation, right? But I mean, <laughs> it leads you, to condemnation of everybody.
2: You realize, though, you just you, this is one of those good cases where it the the tiny little words matter because this is so close to sounding orthodox that you just change a few things. I mean, we do we believe that a sign of somebody who is In a state of salvation, is that they are obedient to Christ. You know, we would say that if they're not obedient to Christ, that that's a sign that they're not saved. But what we don't say is that staying in that state of salvation is somehow or other dependent on a continued set of works that they have to do.
3: And unless you think this is worded poorly, I mean, in this section in doctrine nine, I mean, the doctrine nine section in their uh, handbook of doctrine. They say very clearly that they believe that you are always free to depart, that Christ gives freedom, and that freedom includes the freedom to depart from the faith. And so, I mean, and they're very, so they're very explicit that you can lose your salvation. You can lose your salvation volitionally, And so when they say that it requires continuance, it depends upon continued obedience, obedient faith in Christ. They don't just mean that it's manifested that you were not saved. It's manifested that Christ had not saved you. This is very different from perseverance of the saints. This is a, this is an, this would be one of the Arminian positions that you can lose your salvation.
1: And a lot more clear, I think, than Arminians would typically say, because normal, I mean, normally Arminians would kind of, would not say anything, anything close to this, you know, even, you know, you also have Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, where they also have works-based righteousness, and and I don't know that they say it necessarily this clearly either. I mean, this is very clear that like you to be saved, you have to you have to do works, and 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 it, it is dependent on your
0: works. That that's where your salvation is coming from. Right, Roman Catholic isn't nearly that explicit. They go, it can be dependent on your parents' work. You were baptized, so therefore you're saved. As opposed to this is this is dependent upon. You doing the work, and so it's very it's very explicit, and it and it goes back to the holiness clubs that that uh, that Wesley was doing in Oxford. This was the view where you come in, and and Wesley didn't talk about needing the Holy Spirit. That wasn't until much later in life when people are going, "What about being born again?" That he be- went back and rewrote his history and said, "Oh yeah, I was born again years ago, decades ago, when he didn't talk about it then at all." and it was all you get right with god through your works and so this was very much coming out of a revival of wesleyan doctrine
1: and taking it beyond even certain things that wesley said i think
0: oh yeah i mean in terms of sinless perfectionism especially is that that uh, wesley more held it out as a possibility and you have in the holiness movement you have people you know like charles finney who said i haven't sinned for 13 years i mean they they were very explicit that sinless perfectionism, and then they even come to the point where they say that the second baptism of the Holy Spirit makes you sinlessly perfect. I mean, they, they like change it to to go far beyond where Wesley went. Not necessarily inconsistent with his logic, just right. they just took it to further, to the to the consequences of his logic.
3: And the Salvation Army says explicitly that there is no guarantee that you will attain that you will attain this state, they will say that even those who attain that state, they may still sin some, but that you cannot say that a person, you cannot deny that a person can reach that state where they will no longer sin. And so that's the line they're absolutely clear on, is it is absolutely possible for a person to get to a state where they will no longer sin. And so they're, you know. And of course, we know
0: the Bible says something very different. You know, in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I mean, it's very clear. If you say you have no sin, and they're saying somebody can have no sin, well, their teaching is completely contrary to Scripture. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. John is being as explicit as possible about how you have to deal with sin and how you have to see yourself as a sinner and how you have to recognize that you continue to sin and that that God is the one that has to clean you of your unrighteousness, which is completely different than their doctrine nine, which is saying that their works can clean them.
1: You know, on this verse, they're saying that it means that no one can say that they ever sin. But like what that is, just rewriting what the passage says, because it could easily say if we say that we had no sin, but it says, if we say that we have, meaning currently have no sin, right. which just, you know, they just rewrite that and, and ignore it.
3: what it requires is, in practice, it requires a person to redefine their sin. You know, I mean, and it requires you to, I mean, and, and understand, I mean, this is, these are things that churches argue over all the time. I mean, today there is much more of a prevalent view that all Christians sin greatly. No matter what, that their sin, that that the Holy Spirit really doesn't break the power of sin. That's much more the prevailing view today. But I mean, and we, and we don't think about the, I mean, we talk about this in a lot of different episodes. We go into depth, I think, in the Robbie Zacharias episode where we talk about how you practice at certain sins and they build up to larger sins. And so even where you do talk about someone who could be a very mature believer who really has been sanctified in real ways, it doesn't mean that they're going out and they're murdering. It doesn't right. mean that they're going out and they're committing adultery. Because Paul
0: Could right? No, adulterer will inherit the kingdom of God. Right. Don't be deceived.
3: But they can be doing small sins and doing. I mean, they those, can be
0: looking at a woman to lust for.
3: Right. And they can they can do small sins in a way, and those can and they can be doing those things, and they can see those things, and needing to be repent from those. How it's about
1: they are? Just, <laughs> right. Not they can and, be. But they I'm will just saying, be. They,
3: and they become specific things, and they're not they're not this they're not nebulous sins. They're not imaginary sins. They're not. They're real things that they can even look at and say, that was a sin. I shouldn't have done that today. I should not have done that. That was wrong. And this is something the church argues over constantly. It is a it is fundamental to Christianity to understand sin because without understanding sin, you don't understand what Christ came to do in the world.
2: And there's a little bit of a – I'm going to use the word paradox, but that's not the right, quite the right word. But there's a little bit of a paradox with an actual – Christian who's actually saved and going through the process of sanctification, and as they go through that process of sanctification, they do sin less. You know, this is what we believe that the Holy Spirit does. They, right. they they're it, being
0: conformed to the image of Christ. God they sin less that. as
2: they're being made perfect. No, not not as, <laughs> well, yes, but perfection doesn't happen till heaven, you know, matured, but just... but as they're sinning less, one of the things that happens though is there's also a growing understanding of their own sin and their nature of sin. So So you might actually be thinking that you have more sin, even as the Holy Spirit's taking sin away from you, because there are things that you didn't know about that and the Holy Spirit decides, I'm gonna deal with some big things. And then once the big things are done, we're going to start working on the little things and all of a sudden you realize i am i there's sin all over the place and so i've got all of these these other sins that i'm dealing with and this is why you can meet really mature believers who are really wrestling with their sin and you look at them from the outside and you're like uh it doesn't look that bad to me but that's that's not often how the holy spirit works that holy spirit is often working so that your awareness of sin increases as you mature even as He's taking away your sins,
3: and what used to seem like a small thing to you seems bigger to you now, and yeah, absolutely. Even as it seems you small to others, how it farther separates away.
2: you from God. When there were these other bigger things that you saw those as your impediments,
0: but you look at what the Salvation Army does, and they teach the opposite in real ways. They go as long as you're doing it out of love, it's not sin. Well, if that's your position, as long as you do it out of love, then you commit adultery because the person's lonely. Well, I was doing it out of love. So what they do is they keep redefining sin. So you sin less in your own view of your sin because you're saying I'm doing it. Right. You start to make the excuse that the reason that you do everything is because of love. And And then all of a sudden you can do whatever you want because you say at least I'm doing it out of love.
2: And again, when you're redefining the sins, you're also redefining the righteous things. You've redefined love in that circumstance. That is not God's definition of love it's and so their sin is hatred.
0: decreasing because they're redefining sin so that it's not really decreasing but their view of it, they're seeing it as decreasing
1: because i mean you kind of have two you know heretical doctrines here that are really tied together i mean we read the one that was workspace righteousness where you your, your salvation is dependent on your good works and you also have um the one of sinless perfectionism which is the doctrine 10 in their 12 doctrines we believe that it is the privilege of all believers to be wholly sanctified and that their whole spirit and soul and body may be preserved blameless unto the coming of our lord jesus christ so this is the idea that there is a state i don't think they are saying that all believers are in this state but there is a state that believers get to whether it takes a long time or it could take a shorter time where they stop sinning and are now perfect
2: and it's accessible to any particular right. believer
0: right. anybody that works hard enough can yep. can achieve that state is their view their view also seems to be tied to the second baptism of the holy spirit that that makes you perfect so they also in the end they're making it so that you're you're controlling god because if you desire it enough that somehow the holy spirit has to act i mean they you know when you come up with these doctrines that are false you have to create all these structures around them that that just get to be more and more wacky, just more and more out of out of order, because the reality is truth holds together and falsehoods they just spring and produce more falsehoods. So you keep getting more and more confusion in their doctrine.
1: And this is where we're saying that you know they are um, redefining sin. Because you could believe in workspace righteousness without redefining sin. But you can't believe in Christian perfectionism without redefining sin. Because if you say there are people who are not sinning, well, the Bible says everyone sins. And no one in this life stops sinning entirely. So that means that now the sins that these quote-unquote perfect people are doing, they are defining them as not sin. I mean, to get to that, you have to be so much redefining what sin is and, you know, and ignoring, you know, and making it, and you, you end up making it into just outward things, not on your motivations and your thoughts. Because I think anyone who's honest will, with themselves um, will recognize how deep the corruption of our sin nature goes. And so, th- d- just the idea to say, you know, someone's perfect is just is just so ridiculous. And it's something that even they recognize. Like I was reading, you know, one of their documents, and they're you know from their council of theology or whatever it's called and they're saying like well a lot of problems that the sinless perfectionists that we sinless perfectionist people have is we look and like a lot of us are like actually this isn't working out so great like we have a lot of sin and so they're like kind of being honest like yeah we have to say like these are imperfections of nature these are you know temptations that aren't sinful but like you know, they, they, they are recognizing that they are going through the process of redefining sin and saying these problems in, in my life that are you know, not in accordance with the Bible, not in accordance with God, they're actually not my fault. And they're
0: just stuff that happens to you because you live in a fallen world. And I think that you know, fundamentally what they do is they start out by redefining sin and that's their definition of sin i've said this a couple times their definition of sin is something that's not loving but that's not god's definition of sin and that's really important to remember what god's definition of sin is first john 3 4 whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness when they say you don't need to care about you don't need to obey the commandments of god that is sin you're lawless that by definition it is a lawless organization and because they have – it's a completely lawless organization from the sense of God giving a law, which means that now they're to the point that Booth gives a law or the current you know, general gives a law instead of God giving a law. And so it's all sin, and yet they're trying to make distinctions of some sins are acceptable, some are not, when the reality is because they've rejected the idea that God gets to tell them what to do, it's all sin.
3: I mean, when you made the statement that they redefined sin and then God says that sin is lawlessness and you said they they use as a replacement the definition of love. The problem is, is love and sin and lawlessness are all tied together because when you ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor. And then he says, on this hangs all the law and the prophets. So Jesus says, you want to understand sin? Sin is lawlessness. You want to understand love? Love is, fulfill- is, is the fulfillment of the law, is actually doing it and keeping it and doing these things, is loving your neighbor, and, and the law is not against any of these things. And so there's, but you should, we should also understand that this is a common thing. Most people, the most offensive thing, I don't know most offensive, one of the most offensive things you can tell people is that they don't understand what love is because everybody feels like they understand what love is. And so it's a very powerful thing for, it's why cults do this, it's why false teachers do this, is they look at you and say, all you need is love, but then they don't tell you that the law is not against the love of God. And so they they push love over into your court, and they go, you get to define love, and you get to judge yourself. Or in Booth's case, I get to define love. But in the end, they, they wanna play with something that isn't tied God's law and God says nope it's tied together you cannot separate if you
2: live in a world where love is just a feeling and feelings by nature subjective and then you build a doctrine off of that then it's going to be
0: Plato but but Booth did try to make them objective which is really really confused right but as soon as you put a hierarchy in place all of a sudden you're going to create this this objective thing that's really based on a subjective view but you know it's unloving to smoke a cigarette well, why? Because Booth didn't like cigarettes. You know, it has nothing to do with with any definition that makes any sense. Right. I mean, it's important to remember what it says in Romans 13. Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Every commandment that God gives is summed up in how to love your neighbor. That's why he gave the law, is so we can know how to love our neighbor. And they're saying, no, just love. Well, you can't do that. We need to know how to love. And God says that's what the law does, is it tells you how to love. It doesn't give you the ability to love. Nobody is made righteous by the law, right. but it, what it does is it shows you how to love, and yet Booth goes, reject that, the holiness movement, not just Booth, but the whole holiness movement basically goes, well, reject that idea that God gets to tell you what to do, that God gets to tell you what's righteous, and instead come up with your own, and you'll just call it love, whatever you want to make your own law.
3: I mean, we've we recently recorded an episode on Mormons, and this and both that. I think we've talked about both of these things rose up after, out of the Second Great Awakening, and it's really important. I think in that episode we, we mentioned specifically that there's this part of it where the God's doing these things in the world, and people don't want what God actually has, and so they're interested in different things, and there are people who are selling them different things, and we should just understand the holiness movement was no different. I mean, we're going to talk at some point about Finney. We're going to. T- I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of things that rose out of good doctrine good teaching and actually the work of God going on in the world and in the middle of that there are these things that are rising up that have persisted for a long time some of them because they started off with i mean, there was solid doctrine and they were actually leveraging that solid doctrine to give them stability and give them strength I mean so it's really useful when you look at this just to understand this is the nature of the world is when the church is teaching and the church is preaching there are going to be people who are going to be stealing things from the church. They're going to be trying to use them. And, and Salvation Army has done a lot of good in the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, it depends they, how you define good, right? how you, If right? you
0: define good as bringing glory to God, they have done no good in the world. Right. If you make a man-centered view, then they've done a lot of good in the world. But how does God look at it? He right. looks at it as does he receive glory?
3: They've been able to survive as an organization for a long time in the world. Both
0: much, Just much like money. the Mormons.
3: Right, and, and we just and, and we shouldn 't really say that there's that much fundamental difference between the two of them they're they're idols for different types of people they're, they're forms of idolatry for people looking for different things
0: right I mean one's, you know, Mormons are more gnostic, meaning that they want to have the special knowledge that other people don 't have while while the 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 salvation army is so self-righteous they're just we can be perfect we can be perfect based on our own definition of perfection so they're all trying to sell something that that people who hate god want to buy so i, I
1: was having a little trouble finding a really clear quote from you know william booth um, on sinless perfectionism, and he had a book on it, but I couldn't find it online. It, it probably is out there somewhere, but I did find a quote uh, from his wife that talks about this, Catherine Booth. And and another thing um, that that they did a lot of, I think, is um, really has having women leaders in their the church of the Salvation Army. So right from was, the beginning, right, they so, did. yes. They so so she was co-founder with
0: men and women, yes.
1: So and she said this in a speech. His Holy Spirit not only washes their past sins away, but has the power to keep them from their sins and will, if they trust in him, enable them to live in righteousness and holiness all their lives, walking in obedience to his commandments, keeping that inner law of which we have just heard, the law of Christ, which is the most perfect law and fulfills all others, loving the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. So there she's she's kinda expanding on what that that you know doctrinal statement was that if you really trust the Holy Spirit, he's gonna cleanse you of all sin and you're gonna keep God's law perfectly and love others perfectly. And that's you know, you're gonna be perfect.
3: I mean, there's a part of it where when you if you read that and you go, Well, that's pretty much just matches the verses you guys just read out of scripture. But the difference is is she's saying that a person can fulfill that fully can fill can just on this earth before they've been glorified, that they can be sanctified to the point where they keep that completely and fully. And scripture just says you can't. And so I mean understand there's this part where when you read some of the things they wrote, they sound really nice. They sound like really great things, but they're selling something that Jesus Christ said, This isn't how this isn't the work I'm doing. This isn't how I'm doing it. And Anybody who claims to be doing a work different than Jesus Christ, they're anathema. I mean, this this is, it is evil. So, I mean, she's blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ and she's blaspheming the Holy Spirit.
2: Do, do we believe that the Holy Spirit has the power to wash away past sins? Yes. Do we believe he has the power to keep us from future sins? Yes. Do we believe that he enables us to keep the law of God? Yes. All these things. But we also believe, 1 John says, don't say you're without sin or else... You make god a liar we also believe when paul says that my my flesh is at war with my spirit you know that there are things that are going on that as long as we are in this body that is still corrupted that sin is there and it's something you have to continually fight
0: against
1: and that first john verse is is very clear i mean there's not many things where the bible says if you say this you are not saved that's and that's one of them if you say you have no sin the truth does not abide in you. You are not saved. Um, and and that's something that you, you you get in this Christian perfection. And I don't know if Booth claimed that, but, you know, if, if he's the head of the church that believes in sinless perfection and he's not perfect, shouldn't someone else be the head of the church? I mean, so, and, it's, and it's just really clear. And one of the reasons why people... Embrace the perfectionism or the entire sanctification is that they were looking at real issues in the, the church of the time where you have You know Anglicanism in England everyone's a Christian, but yet a lot of people are living really wicked lives So they d- it does have the appeal that they're saying actually when you're saved that means something and you don't live Like everyone lives you can't get drunk every day and call yourself a Christian just because you got baptized at the church when you were an infant And so they do have that, you know, um, that, that stand against a real issue in the church. But then they take it so far that they end up going back and saying sin means nothing and that you know you can, you can be, have a life filled with sin and say you're perfect.
0: And you look at Wesley and what he was trying to, to do when he started the holiness clubs was he was trying to deal with that issue. The problem is he dealt with it the wrong way. He didn't say what Jesus Christ said in John 3, which is you must be born again. What he said instead is that you can come up with a list of practices, and if you do those practices, you'll be saved. Well, that's not what the Bible says. It never says that. It says you must be born again. And so they rightly identified a problem. Wesley did the, the holiness movement. They rightly identified a problem, but they didn't. They ignored the biblical solution. The biblical solution is you people aren't Christians.
3: I mean, and, and they were trying to – and you look at this, how this plays out in, in the Salvation Army – guaranteed having this second blessing and having the state where you reach certain levels it's going to be part of it's going to be you're going to have your worker bees and you're going to have your people who want to go up in leadership you're going to have this i mean and it's the sort of the same issue that the evangelical church today sort of fights in a different way where we talk about there's a lot of unbelievers in the church and so we want to make we need to make an argument for how there can be people who get saved who don't seem to have any change in their life like you're talking about not necessarily going out and getting drunk, but sometimes depending on what church you're in, depending on where you are, that might be what they're doing. And then there's others who seem like they actually have some form of holiness in their life. And how do you describe that? How do you explain that? If if Jesus Christ does certain things for everybody, what are those things? What do those things look like? And there's this part of it where you have to, you have to describe it. And in the Salvation Army, they've described it in a way that plays well with their With their army concept and with their hierarchy, with their and it gives them a very easy structure for well, you know, some people need to be working and some people we're holier and we're made holier and we need to be in leadership and we can just define our sins in a way that fit within our organizational structure and that's fine. I'm not a jerk. I'm just I just take leadership, you know, and that's
0: and again God because they chose the army picture that looks very different about what people look like. When you look at how can this person be at this stage of holiness and this person be at this stage, if you look at it like a family, like children in a family, you go, well, obviously, a one-year-old is going to look different than a 20-year-old. Duh. Everybody knows this. Everybody has different expectations for a 20-year-old son than they do for a one-year-old son. And so if you put it in the biblical context, the context that God has said this is how we're supposed to look at it, then all of a sudden you go, well, that makes sense. And can you tell who the father is based on the child? Well, a one-year-old, you can still tell who their father is. The 20-year-old, you can still tell who their father is. But the 20-year-old is still a lot different than the one-year-old. Right. The only reason that we pretend like you can't tell the difference is we refuse to use the biblical model. And instead we come up with fake models, right. fake models like the Salvation Army.
2: Or take the other model of it being a body where you're supposed to look and say, well, the body is made up of parts and the parts have different functions and no one part is supposed to look at another one and say, I wish I were that. Right. So, you know, and, and no one part's supposed to look down on another one and say, I'm better than
0: you. And that the salvation army definitely does look down and say, I'm better than you. I, I should be a general. You're just a captain. You're just a corporal. You're just, you know, they create the hierarchy and it's a promotion thing and it's a, you know, it's all, it's all about rank and it's all about privilege, which is very unbiblical.
3: And privilege comes from the word private law. And it doesn't mean it's always applied that way. But when you create something like that, that's exactly how it will be. That's exactly right. what it will mean.
0: One thing that you see in any of these organizations that start to exalt men, you know, mankind, they always – because as soon as you say man can become perfect, then you have to say that men and women are the same because you've exalted the person who's made in the image of God. And so this is one of the reasons that it's so serious when you put women into leadership is because it is a fundamental rejection of how God ordered the world, how God ordered the world to be a picture of Christ in the church. And so when you look at an organization like this, it starts out with Catherine Booth being equal with her husband. not Not in practice, but this is the words that they were using. And so then you turn around and you go, well, obviously they worship men because this is a, a fundamental sign of the worship of men rather than the worship of God.
3: And when you get to the point of where they're going to end up accepting the homosexuality and things like that, that's basically a combination of both of those: the view that the view of men and women being equal and the view of love, that love is the highest thing. So you just change love. You go, hey, we're denying people's ability to love one another. And all these things, suddenly they fall into line because- it's it's just a natural evolution of your of And so thinking. all
0: you have to do is have a new general at, whose position changes some yep. and then all of a sudden you can redefine your love you can classic conservatism the new standard is whatever the whatever was was adopted 5 years ago that becomes the new standard that's what that's what conservatism is and that's what the salvation army is they're not christian in any sense they although they claim to be instead they're just conservative
1: Another of the distinctives of the Salvation Army that's pretty problematic is they actually abolish uh, the Lord's Supper and Baptism. And um, the Handbook of Doctrine explains it this way. The religion of Jesus Christ is spiritual. Christ's words, rightly understood, include no command for the permanent observance of any outward ceremony. The fact that certain ceremonies were observed by some of the early Christians does not prove that all Christians ought to observe them, for even the apostles did not understand all at once the spiritual principles of Christ's kingdom. Sometime after they had been told to go and make disciples of all nations, Peter had to be taught that salvation was for the Gentiles. Sacraments are often a hindrance rather than a help to those who use them, and that they lead people to rely upon outward ceremony rather than upon Christ. And, but if you notice there, they're quoting the Great Commission: "Go and make disciples of all nations." End quote. But if they had continued it would have said baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which would have just destroyed their entire argument, because Christ literally tells them to go out and
0: baptize people. And but their argument is that you're just supposed to spiritualize all that.
1: Sure, but but it, it blows their argument out because Christ has to baptize them, and then they go out and dunk People in water, and is but,
3: there not but, one but, kettle? Do we not all put <laughs> coins into there?
0: <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking as you were reading that, I said before that you know that, that Mormonism was a Gnostic religion, that it was a special knowledge, but they're saying this is a right. Gnostic religion too, that they have this special knowledge that somehow they know that even though Christ said, Make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that he didn't really mean that, that that was supposed to be spiritualized. Well, thats they're doing exactly the same thing that Joseph Smith did. They're just taking something that's clear writing and saying you have to have special knowledge to interpret it. It's the same thing that the Roman Catholic Pope does. It's what all these people do, rather than saying that God has given us his word so that we can understand it. The, perso- the perspicuity of Scripture— is a doctrine that has been so that is so abused and it's abused by these cults it's abused by these people who want to go I have power because I'm the only one that can actually interpret it you can't understand it it was given for me to interpret it not you which is what the salvation army is being pretty explicit about is that yeah he said baptize but he didn't mean baptize you're supposed to know that because Peter didn't know that the salvation was for the gentiles well Peter should have known that. It was in the scripture many, 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 many many times. But Peter was rejecting things that he should have obeyed. It wasn't that somebody came up with new knowledge that Peter somehow was supposed to—he couldn't have known it, which is what they're saying. They're saying that that Christ said baptize them, but he didn't mean baptize them. Christ said to do the Lord's Supper, but he didn't mean to do the Lord's Supper. That was just the naivety of Paul that was saying to do the Lord's Supper every week. No. That's that's just that's just completely different because there's nothing in the Old Testament that says this that you're wrong as opposed to Peter's correction was from the Old Testament.
1: And the other issue is that Peter was corrected in the Bible by God and that was <laughs> recorded. And then they went on for another almost two thousand years baptizing people and doing the Lord's Supper, and it was never corrected until General Booth comes along and sets it all straight. And
2: realizes
3: that sacraments are often I, I mean, and
2: this this is just rich on so many points. I and mean, you talked about how they just stopped the quote short there. But then when Peter goes to the Gentiles, it's he's going to the Gentiles as, oh, I guess these people can get baptized too because they get the Holy Spirit too. I mean, that bit of, from, their, from the Salvation Army's Doctrine 9, where they say that your salvation is dependent on continuing in obedient faith to Christ. And then you come up, with something like this, where it's like, actually, you don't have to be obedient in faith to Christ according to anything that Christ said to do. You just you, have to do
0: it according you to what you we say means.
2: redefine, you know, don't listen to what Christ actually said when he says, go baptize. Don't listen to Christ when he says, do this in remembrance of me. You don't have to pay attention to any of that. I don't know what obedient faith in Christ means anymore if it's not doing the things Christ said to do.
0: But it but they do. It's whatever General Booth said and whatever the follow-ons for General Booth. They oh, okay. they get to define what it means to be faith have faith in Christ. And obviously to do the sacraments, which Christ commanded, you don't do those because if you did those, then they're a hindrance. Instead, it's bowing down to the idols of, of the salvation army, which is they get to make the laws. That's why I keep saying That those generals are put in the place of God because they get to say this is what faith in Christ looks like, obedience to faith in Christ, because it's not from Scripture. Because they say all the commandments of God are rejected, that the only commandment is love, and now we'll define what love is.
1: Not again, they're identifying a real problem. I mean, it is a real problem when people rely on our ceremony rather than upon Christ. And that's been a problem for many, many, many years. That was a
0: problem with circumcision and the Jews.
1: (laughs) But it doesn't mean that, therefore, throw it all out and listen to the generals.
0: And that's a really important point, right? Jesus Christ, when he gave... The, the sacrament of baptism when he gave the sacrament of the lord's supper it's not like he didn't know what the jews were doing with uh, remember he he wove the whip of cords and drove the money changers out of the temple it's not like he didn't know how they can twist these things and make these things an outward show to pretend like they're righteous he said you think your father is god but your father or you think your father is abraham but your father is satan it's not like jesus christ didn't know what they could do and yet he still gave the commands they're going Jesus didn't really know, so he gave the commands out of ignorance. That's who they're assigning ignorance to, is Christ. Because they're acting like they're smarter than Christ.
2: It You know, this last bit in their, their quote here, sacraments are often a hindrance rather than a help to those who use them. In a sense, that's true. In a sense, that's biblical. Paul says, you have to be careful. Some of you take the Lord's Supper, and because of that are dead, because you do it wrongly. I mean, that's really true, but The solution that Paul offers is not, oh, therefore, stop taking the Lord's Supper. Stop practicing the Lord's Supper in your churches. It's a hindrance to you. His solution is get right with God. That's the point of, of having this ceremony is you have an opportunity to say, how am I with God? Because this is a statement that I'm right with God.
3: Right, the condemnation that comes with falsely taking a sacrament and f- abusing it, and thinking, looking at it with faith, is prescribed by God. God, God designed that to be something that He uses to purify His church.
2: And, I, I mean, and if you want just the irony of this, they excommunicated themselves. It's an entire church that excommunicated themselves, right. and and that's terrible. Yeah. And I mean. Big picture, it's actually
0: kind of cool. But yet we look at them and we go, this is all normal. Because, you know, true Christians don't have that much discernment. And we really have a duty to have more discernment. We really have a duty to look and say, these people act like they're doing good works. They're saying that they're Christians. But are they? Is that what they hold to? Is that what they're teaching? Is that what they're actually—is that what they're—are They're, they're are they, are they aligned with Christ— are they aligned with God? Are they stealing glory from God? And we're, we have a duty to ask those questions instead of just going, yeah, but they're feeding the poor. Well, that's not enough. One of the things that happens, right, is that we should look at these movements and see they've really had effects on the church. And even now, there's there's issues with, you know, like I went to Nigeria recently and there's, you know, the idea that people are speaking in tongues. I mean, it's like they all think that this is holy and this is righteous, well, these things actually flow from from the beginnings of these things where they go, well, you, the second baptism of the Holy Spirit makes you perfect and sinless. Well, they took it and said, well, instead of making perfect and sinless, which is ridiculous because it's not true, the second one actually makes you effective. And so now all of a sudden you start speaking in tongues. Now all of a sudden you can heal people now. And so it's— when we look at the modern Pentecostal movement, it is flowing from these type of movements and from the holiness movement. It's not like a separate thing. It's like we, they see the falsehood of their doctrine, so they take it and they they try to correct it. But again, just like Booth did, they correct it in such a way that it gets worse in a lot of ways. And so then they make the Holy Spirit, instead of about holiness, they start to make the Holy Spirit a joke and about these sign gifts and about doing a show so that everybody applauds them because they are still about the worship of men, even though they're not worshiping men by saying they can become sinless. They're saying that men basically, you know, the people that have the special anointing of God, these are now the most important people, which isn't really any different than what Booth was saying.
1: Yeah, and we recently talked about Mormonism, and this is – uh, and Mormonism comes out of the Second Great Awakening, melting pot of Methodism type stuff, and uh, the Salvation Army comes out of the same group. I mean, they both—you know—they they both had you know
0: England some... versus America, but yeah,
1: right. But Mormonism also is pretty big in England, until totally tried to get them all to move to Utah. But they, uh, um, I mean, the, the Salvation Army also had a lot of the Pentecostal type things of like the really like like pretty wacky. You know, expressions of "quote unquote" the Holy Spirit in their meetings. So it's uh, it's all there's a lot of t- cross ties between all these groups, and they end up they end up going in different directions, but they they have a lot of the same core errors.
0: Right, they end up getting a focus on certain things, and yet that they're still they all have this instead of going, what does the Holy Spirit do? What does the Holy Spirit do? What does the Bible say the Holy Spirit does? They kind of ignore that, and they start to say it does all these things based on what their own preferences are. Instead of actually saying, what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit causes you to walk in the commandments of God. That's what the Bible says. But yet, instead of that, they go, it makes you speak in tongues, it makes you heal, or it makes you sinless so that you have no sin, which the Bible doesn't say the Holy Spirit does. And so they they take it and then they pick their favorite aspect where they reject the core fundamental orthodox principles because all of them mean that you have to bow down before the living God, while all the other ones end up that you bow down before men. But we should recognize how much our churches change by these things that that flow out even as we reject the doctrine. Like this perfectionism, part of the reason, part of what happens with the sinless perfectionism and that that holiness movement is you have a guy named Welsh who goes, well, it's sin to drink, so therefore the Lord's Supper is sinful to take the Lord's Supper with wine. So then he comes up with grape juice and says, you have to use grape juice because to drink it with wine is to drink the cup of demons rather than the cup of God. And so this is out of that same milieu, and we look at it now and we go, how many churches in America? Probably well over 90%, I would guess, if you don't call Roman Catholic churches. Well over ninety percent use grape juice, and where is that? That is from the sinless perfectionism movement,
3: and and the reason for that, in a lot of ways, is, is if you're going to claim holiness, and you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't want to mess around with things that have power. I mean, why? You know, what I mean, alcohol is a thing that has an influence. It has a strong, you know, what I mean, it, it it's it's easy to abuse, and God says someone who's a christian that they're not going to be overcome by this they're not they're not going to be overcome by the world and but if you look at it you go we have to if we're going to make holiness to be here then you better not have this thing has power and we don't have any way to defend against it so what do you do is you outlaw the substance you push sin over into the substance the demon liquor and these things and like you said i mean it's It's all of these things flow from theology. They flow from how they think about the world. They flow from how you, if you see there is no power of the Holy Spirit around you, then you better. I mean, it's why, you know, one of the reasons why Mormons do the same thing no strong drink, not even coffee. They don't want, you know, I mean, there's this part of it where, I mean, you recognize that we can't have anything that causes people to sin because we don't have any other means to fight against sin.
2: Or, or, let me, let me try and rephrase that because it's not about the things cause, that cause people to sin. It's about where the location of sin is. You said it. You, sure. you know, you're pushing the sin out. But, but part of that's just the, the guilt that's associated with the fact that John is right in First John. We all have sin. right? And everything that we're trying to do, if you have a structure where you're going for perfection, is figure out what can I do to minimize sin in my own life. And one of the ways you can redefine sin is you can take sin out of you and you can put it in a thing, and then you can blame the thing and you can distance yourself from the thing and not realize that it's your own black heart that's the problem.
3: Right. And what I mean by that is things that cause what look like very visible sins. So you try to stay away from those those things. I mean, alcohol has more power in certain. You know, I mean, has it has a effect on a person and. They, and it's easy to associate that effect with sin.
0: And I, in my thought, though, is you're saying that, and not that I disagree with that, but at the same time, Jesus goes, washing your hands is the one that the Jews right. were doing, right? Because you have to wash your hands. Because if you don't wash your hands before you eat, then you're sinning. Well, they're saying that the sin is in the substance. Right. And we go, but washing your hands doesn't have power. But for them, washing their hands had power because— right. Just like we give power to the alcohol, they gave power to washing hands. And right. we need to be really careful because right. it's easy for us to sit back and say alcohol has power. But in a lot of cultures, it doesn't have that much power. You look at Some diet
3: fads in America and things they like have that. It the I same mean, power, yeah, yeah exactly. Which is, which is the same substance argument, fundamentally. And all those right. diet fads came out of the
2: second great awakening. And I mean, you know, it's just. Welch, Graham. If, if you go at, at any Kellogg, any of those, they're all products of the Second Great Awakening.
0: Another way that churches have been affected by these things that are coming out of these movements, so we look at the movements and we go, these movements are terrible, but yet we adopt parts of it, like grape juice. But another one would be altar calls. We adopt altar calls when the altar call was, was – not righteous. It was not about how do you get right with God. It was about how do you get seen by men? How do you get counted? How do you. And, and we look at these things and we go, well, we adopted it because look, the, the, you know, these, these movements, they had such a huge influence, and look how rapidly they expanded. We just need to recognize that, of course, things expand rapidly. There's more goats than there are sheep. That's the promise of God, is that wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many will find it, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and there are few who will find it. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the Salvation Army goes throughout the whole world. Of course, there's lots of people that want to be told that their sin isn't sin because they love. There's lots of people that want that. It doesn't make them right with God. All it does is make them eager to be deceived. And so we shouldn't look at things and see that they're widely adopted and go, oh, that's what we should do. Well, of course, that shouldn't be the standard of what we should do, because if that's the standard of what you do, you, in the end, are always worshiping men. When you go, this is what most people do, that is a sign that you're worshiping men. What you're supposed to do is say, what does God say?
3: And this really goes back to the question at the beginning is, should you give your money to them? Because in a sense, in some ways, what they're doing is, we've talked about this many charitable organizations out there they're they're selling the idea that you can throw some money in that pot and do something good in the world and cause goodness to go out into the world and there's just you know and they're you're, you're selling this you're you're throwing that coin in there and you're funding someone who's going to go out and actually try to sell someone a false gospel and you know you might they might give somebody soup along the way they might give them a bowl of soup and then tell them the false gospel but that's but that's why on. they gave
0: soup from the beginning. That's why it was it was done was so that they could teach them a false gospel. And so all of a sudden you're giving them money and they probably do less zeal to teach the false gospel than they did when they were first started because now they're so much about money and collecting money and the the work of doing it. But still in the end, you need to recognize that you're paying somebody money so that they can sell somebody something. They're not they're not doing it as out of charity. They're doing it because they want to sell a false product.
1: And one of the things that we talked about in those episodes you mentioned was that um, when you try to move charity to the government or try to move it to these you know, nonprofit organizations, you're, you're taking the duty that the church has and the individuals have and putting it in some other entity. Well, the Salvation Army is kind of an improvement at first glance because they are supposedly a church. But if there are a church that's, on, that's funded on a false gospel, then it's, act, it's actually worse. It's actually worse to have a false church be doing the charity than no church at all.
0: But it's important to remember exactly what, what Jesus Christ says in Matthew 25. He doesn't say, I was hungry, so you gave money, so somebody else would feed me. He says, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was, I was homeless, and you took me in. I mean, it's none of it is about and people would have given money then, too. It's not like this is a new idea that you could just pass off your responsibility to somebody else. But Christ, when he says he comes at the end of time and judges, it's not about who did you give money to to do your job. It's about are you doing your job?
3: All right. The argument isn't put the money in your pocket. Don't throw it to them and then go on your way and not worry about anyone out there.
1: It's join the Salvation Army. Don't just give them money.
3: It's, it's form your own cult. It's, but I mean, it, the answer is, is maybe don't give the money to the Salvation Army and go, what would God have me to do? Who are the people that I should be feeding? Who are the people that I should be helping? Where are they? And am I doing those things? And if you do them, the God who does not need a hierarchy, the God who does not need a whole bunch of generals out there, will actually direct, Will direct you and will direct his servants to meet the needs in the world that he wants met. And he'll redeem the world, and he'll do it through his atonement. I mean, you know, one of the things they argued in there, I think, is that denying sinless perfectionism was denying the work of the atonement. And that was in their handbook. And and so there's this part of it where, but we've done an episode, I mean, specifically on the atonement. God gets to push the atonement out. God, the atonement that Jesus Christ did is going out in the world, and it's destroying sin, and he's doing it through his means. And the question is, are you his servant? Are you his foot soldier? Are you really serving him? And that's what you should be.
0: In this episode, in the episode on Mormonism, one thing that I hope that you see is cults always want to make themselves look acceptable to the world. People who want to mislead and lead people away from God, they don't do it by disguising themselves as vicious, evil people. What they do is they disguise themselves as an angel of light. They say, look, we're helping people. Just give us money. But the question is, what would God have you do? How do you bring glory and honor to God's name instead of the name of men? Thanks for joining us. This
3: has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.